that's all the worship we got for this part of the, the service. You may be seated. <laughs> our Father in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you, God. Uh, we are, we're told that we are supposed to be thankful this month and thankful this weekend, um, but we don't need a month. We don't need a weekend. We don't need a day. We're thankful to you because you are the God of our salvation. You do give us life. You give us breath. You are the word that restores our soul and causes our souls to spring up. And so in you we have spiritual vitality. In you we have everything that we truly need. In you, we lack nothing. And we have rest. And we have peace. And we have goodness to eternal life. So we are thankful, God. You hear us, and we are thankful that you hear us. You go beyond what we could ask or think. You certainly go beyond our needs. And give us out of your grace and abundance. Father, in your grace and abundance, we pray, Father, for this season as we enter into the Christmas season. We call it Advent sometimes in the church as we look forward and backward. We look backward to the waiting and the longing of, of Israel for a Messiah, and we look forward to the return of our King, Jesus, when he will come to judge the living and the dead and reign forever and ever. And yet our world is looking forward to stress and anxiety and presents and gifts and, 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 and all these Sarge, the trappings of this world. Uh, Father, we, we pray that you would help us to keep our focus on him who is coming, who was and who is and who is to come. And that these uh, frail things that are passing away would not be distractions for us. But more than ever, God, uh, give us through that focus and by your spirit, the ability to speak into the, uh, the sort of perverse hopelessness of this season. It's a hopelessness because the world is, is full of hope, but it's a hope that's placed in things that don't last and can't ultimately give hope, and it's robbed so quickly. We, we know it, God, because we see, sadly, we see suicide rates go up this time of year. 
Father, may we be people of true hope. May we not be afraid to open our lips and speak words of hope to a world so much in need. And Father, we pray not just for ourselves and for our community. We, we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters across the world. We pray for those in, in Turkmenistan this morning. Father, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in Turkmenistan, particularly those uh, of the Turkish minority, uh, well, the Turkish majority there, but, but certainly our Christian brothers and sisters of, of Turkish descent in Turkmenistan are a distinct minority and we pray, Father, that they, uh, in particular, would be bold in their witness, that they would be strong in the might of your gospel, that they would not be ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Father, we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit there, that, that many would come to know the saving hope of Jesus we pray that you protect them from, from persecution, from, um, from the government, from, uh, from the Muslim majority, uh, from those who uh, oppose anything but the Orthodox Church. Um, and uh, we pray, Father, we pray, Father, for the salvation of many in Turkmenistan this Christmas season. We pray, Father, that your word would reverberate in our hearts and in our congregation this morning. May we hear your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to be in the first uh, 13 verses as we continue to make our way through. Uh, this, this book, First Samuel sixteen. The Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite." For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, and neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made 
Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here we are. Um, I've cheekily titled this sermon series. It goes through the final three quarters of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. David ben Yeshai, A New Hope, and that title is obviously, it's a, it's a riff on Star Wars, of course. and um, It's also a riff on the sermon series I, I did on the first quarter of this book back in 2018. Uh, but to this point, we've only spoken of Saul, who became king, and Samuel, the prophet and judge. There's, there's been no hint of David and Saul has not been much of a hope but in 1 Samuel 16 we finally see David the the new hope but David appears and and this new hope in the history of Israel's struggle against sin and and oppression appears on the scene But, but the passage really centers on the one behind that new hope. Uh, the story of 1 Samuel is a particularly crucial snapshot in the story of the Old Testament, which is the story of the Bible, that God is saving a people for himself. He's saving a people for himself because although he's the rightful king of creation, we haven't honored him as such. We've gone our own way. We've tried to rule ourselves. And in 1 Samuel, The Israelites relive that quite vividly by literally requesting a king to rule them in the place of God. They, like all of us, become rebels, traitors, seditionists, and and that constant striving to run our lives after our own wisdom and energy and our own sense of righteousness leads to disastrous consequences. Often in the natural world, anxiety, constant striving, Hostility, unrest, but always in the spiritual world, separation from God who made us. So this passage of scripture we're looking at this morning, God chooses a new hope for his people, a new hope to save his people, to liberate them from their own wickedness and the consequences of that injustice, both natural and spiritual. And it's part of this larger narrative, a, a meta-narrative, if you will, of Scripture. But, but as a snapshot into that story, it allows us maybe to take a peek into maybe a, a, a more theological and philosophical concern in, in the midst of that narrative. How God exercises his saving choice in space and time. How God works within human history. And so as we we explore God's choice of a new 
hope for his people. That's the big idea of this passage. We'll note four characteristics of God's saving choice. Four characteristics of God's saving choice. So this passage is about God's choice of a new leader, a new hope for his people. God is the the main character, not Samuel, not David. It's God. And that's clear at the very top of the passage because at the very top of the passage, uh, we, we pick up where we left off last week. Samuel is grieving that Saul has departed from following God. And God was regretting that he had made Saul king. But at the very beginning of this chapter, the time for mourning is over and God chastises Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? It's a gentle chastising. How much better would we be if we had more people who mourned like Samuel, over our fallen leaders. But God continues with a straightforward set of commands. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God had a king in mind. And Samuel needed to go uh, with some oil and anoint the man. And and that was a common practice at the time. And, And so that's what Samuel did in chapter 10 with Saul, after God had identified him as Israel's first king. The horn is probably an animal's horn, probably like a ram or a goat's horn, which could be used as a container. The, the tip could be removed and both ends sealed. And the larger end you fill, smaller end could be used for pouring. So, so grab your oil horn, Samuel, because you're going to anoint a new king. That's the command. But it also underscores something to note about God's Sovereign, saving choice. Because aren't God's words interesting here? Maybe they even sound strange to you. He says, I have provided for myself a king. He doesn't say he's providing a king for Israel. He says he has provided a king for himself. And past tense, already done. See, this isn't first and foremost, about his people. It's not primarily about us. It's firstly about God himself. One of the reasons we so misunderstand God or mistake God, I think both Christians and non-Christians alike, is that we think God is primarily concerned about us. Now, don't get me wrong. God is very much concerned with us. God is infinite. He's all-knowing and he's all-caring. So he is most certainly concerned with us. But God is also all-important. He is the most important being in existence. And so it would be wrong in a manner of speaking to not have a primary concern on himself as the most important being in existence. If there's a a raging fire and trapped inside the building is a single mother of two children, Joseph Biden and me, and the fire department shows up, there's going to be a pecking order of who they rescue. 
they're probably going to get the mother first, I think. I think. If the Secret Service gets there first, they'll probably get the president because that's their unique job. But the fire department, I think they get the mother first. She has two people who depend on her. No one else can do that. She gets saved first. President Biden is very important, but we don't live in an autocracy. If we live in an autocracy, I think he gets first. We have a vice president. That's what vice presidents are for. So I think he's two. I'm down at three. I get that. And as the three of us were in a room waiting for the fire department and saw a way that one of us could get out, but only one of us, that single mother, if she could be completely clear-minded and perfectly loving and perfectly logical amidst a raging fire, I think she would have to agree that she should prioritize her own life in that situation. That wouldn't be selfish or wrong. She's the most valuable person. It's hard to be logical in those kind of situations. But God is the most valuable being, and it is not wrong for him to prioritize himself. And he does. And there's ample evidence in Scripture that he does so. I'll I'll rattle off a few Scriptures, but we could go on and on. You can turn with me or you can listen. Your call Psalm 23. You know this one. It's famous, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord does all this good for me, David says. Why? For his name's sake for the sake of his name, for the sake of his reputation, for his glory, for his honor. In Isaiah 48, God begins to chastise his people because they use his name. They call themselves his people, but they're phonies and they're they're worshiping other gods. And they say to him, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. For his name's sake, for his own purpose, he has held back his furious anger from destroying his people. For his own sake, he has refined his people instead. Is it for their good? Absolutely. But who's primary? God. Even in Isaiah 43, when God speaks of forgiving his people's sins, what could be more important to me? What could be more important to God's people than their sins being forgiven? But listen to how he says. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And do you remember when Israel was was enslaved in Egypt? How did they escape? If you answer because God wanted to free them from their oppression, well, you would be right, but you'd only be partly right. Because this is what God said to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in Exodus 9, 16. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul quotes that verse in 
in, in the book of Romans as well. And, and consider the weight of it. God raised up Pharaoh, allowed Pharaoh to come into power, allowed Pharaoh to enslave the Israelites, to treat them cruelly and to oppress them in no small part to show that God could show the world that he was far more powerful than any king or any other god, whether in Egypt or Babylon or Canaan or any other land, and that he would be rightly worshipped. Or as Paul writes, speaking of God in Romans eleven sixteen, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Or again in Colossians, speaking specifically of the Son, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All of creation exists, and that includes you and me and David and Samuel and Saul. All of it exists for God. So we could go on and on with examples, but this should give us comfort because we know what kind of God he is. He's a good God. And so all that he does, he does in the interest of good. He himself being the chief good, the supreme good. And since he is unchanging, we can be comforted knowing that we can count on God to keep acting in ways that consistently bring about his good ends. We may not always see the big picture that he sees, but we can trust him. So God has provided a king for himself from the sons of Jesse. God has seen fit through his sovereign providential care of history from generation to generation to find just the man he wanted, just the man he desired to serve as king for him at that time. That's what he's saying. And so Samuel has his task. God's saving choice is about God. We can say more. As we move down, Samuel is rightly a little bit concerned. He's maybe the most famous person in the country of Israel. He's at least the second most famous. He's had a long career of traveling between four cities. So if you've been following First Samuel, you know that Samuel spends most of his time going year after year between Ramah, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and then goes back to Ramah. That's kind of this circuit that he travels uh, in serving God's people, serving Israel. But King Saul and Samuel are no longer on speaking terms. And Samuel has already told Saul that the kingdom's going to be torn away from him. There's no doubt that King Saul was keeping an eye on Samuel as a political rival. 
And so there's reason to be concerned. And so God tells him to take an animal and to tell the people that he's offering a sacrifice. And that's not a lie. He's going to do that. And there's legitimate reasons why a priest like Samuel might offer a sacrifice as part of the normal course of the ministry. And so that gives him appropriate cover to be going to a city that he would not normally be going to as a priest. And so Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. And the town elders are there. They're, they're probably sitting or standing at the city gate. That would have been the custom at the time. That's the place of business, the place where they would discuss the affairs of the city. And they're concerned about whether Samuel comes in peace. That's kind of an odd thing. Maybe they had heard about Samuel's encounter with King Agog uh, recently where he hacked him to pieces. But in any case, they know, uh, or even though that Samuel is generally a very peaceful man, they know he's not one that they want to trifle with. But Samuel reassures them, and, and he tells them he's come to sacrifice, and he invites them and, and Jesse's family to sacrifice. And the sacrifice is it's probably a, a peace offering, or, or some translations call a fellowship offering. And it represents the peace or the fellowship that the worshipers enjoy with God. It was enjoyed as something like a communal meal with God. A portion of the slaughtered animal was burnt up as like a symbolic food offering, and the remainder was enjoyed in the presence of the Lord by the worshipers. So it's a serious occasion, but it also might be more joyful or, or spirited than we would think of it. Uh, in terms of a sacrificial meal. At least I, I just always, I think when I was younger, reading the Bible, you think these sacrifices are always just very serious and very stoic. And I think these peace offerings might have been a little bit more joyful, maybe a little bit more celebratory. Because it's a celebration that God desires to be near His people by His Spirit. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the Lord's sacrifice of himself, yes, but we're, we're remembering uh, that, which is a sin offering, but we're also remembering that through that sacrifice, we have peace with God. And, and so when we come together, <coughs> we do so in his presence. And so it's right that we do so with joy and, and celebration in our hearts. Well, so at, at this fellowship offering, Samuel observes the sons of Jesse, or Yeshai in Hebrew. And, and he first, he first he notices Eliab, who must have been a striking man. And, and Samuel is sure that Eliab is the Lord's anointed, God's chosen king. But God quickly rebukes him. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Apparently, part of what stood out about Eliab was his height. And that's interesting because that's one of the few things we learned about Saul, the man who became Israel's first king back in chapter 9. There we read that Saul, the son of a wealthy man named Kish, was incredibly handsome. In fact, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. His looks and his height set him apart. 
as the portrait of what worldly wisdom finds desirable in a leader. And so he got the job. But now God has provided a king for himself. And these details are not as important. And the words God speaks here, they're, they're pretty well known. They're pretty, pretty famous if you grew up in church especially. For the Lord sees not as man sees. <clears throat> man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But I think for those of us who have heard those or know those words, we maybe don't appreciate fully what God is really saying. At least I, at least I don't. Maybe it's, I'm just speaking to myself. I don't think I really appreciated what God was saying until I really slowed down to unpack this. I think I generally thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I shouldn't be so focused on outward appearances and external things. Good people, Christian people should be like God. And focus on internal things like character and integrity. That's what it's saying, right? So I took a, a moral lesson away from God's words here. And there's truth to that. We would do well to be more like God. And beauty is only skin deep and all of that. But that's not what God said, is it? God didn't tell Samuel, Samuel, investigate these young men with godly vision and right judgment did he there's no command here there's no moral imperative god was rebuking samuel with the facts with the with the naked truth with the sheer sad reality that this is the way it is men human beings look at outward appearances that's what we do do you want to do better great but what capacity do you have to look at someone's heart? The heart, in, in Hebrew thinking, was more than just the, the seat of emotions. The, we think of the heart as where our emotions and the true character lie. But in Hebrew thought, the heart was also the seat of the mind. So what we think of like the, the brain doing the thinking and the reasoning, they would also put that in the heart region. But every whatever you want to call it, the heart, the mind, we can only analyze that by looking at what it produces. Our best hope for getting at someone's character and desires is, is to watch and, and to observe and to get to know them. But it's always like looking at a fossil record and trying to reconstruct an ancient habitat we just don't have first-hand data. And that's at our best. We are well aware of the fact that as creatures who live our lives by the external and the material, whose best philosophers and scientists still struggle to define even what a mind or a consciousness is, we place an unfortunate amount of priority on appearances, don't we? sometimes in ways that are foolish and sometimes in ways that are just evil. And so, the reality is that we have absolutely no ability to rend the ether between the firing of synapses and examine 
that thing we call the soul of the creature in front of you. We, we are just blind detectives searching for clues. But not the Lord, not God. He sees directly into it and sees it as it is. He is categorically different than us in that way. And so after seven sons pass by and Samuel realizes that none of them were whom the Lord had spoken of, he asked Jesse if there's another. There is the youngest, or the word could be translated smallest, and maybe both are meant. He's out with the sheep. Someone had to watch the flock, which might suggest that Jesse wasn't so rich that he could merely leave the sheep with the hired hands. He didn't have a hired hand, perhaps. This youngest son isn't bad-looking himself. He's described as having beautiful eyes and being handsome despite his youth and ruddy complexion. But we already know that those aren't factors that move God. God tells Samuel, rise and anoint him, for this is he. What is it about this youngest son, David, that, that carries God's stamp of approval? It's mysterious to us, precisely because we do not have the same penetrating access as God. And that's sort of the point. God's saving choice is, is based on a perfect internal knowledge. He sees things that we simply cannot see. He knows things we simply never will. God sees the whole loaf when we can only glean the breadcrumbs scattered by our lives. He knew exactly what sort of man David was and would be. Better than David himself, certainly better than Samuel, and he knew it for better and for worse. God's saving choice is based on his perfect internal knowledge what does that mean for you and me well it it means among uh, other things that that no one can look at another person and say he is beyond redemption or she is beyond god's grace i I mean god's arm is too long his hand is too powerful for for that of course but it is simply the case that we also don't see with god's eyes We don't see the future he sees. We don't see the depths and complexities he sees. We we don't understand what takes a man like Charles Colson, Richard Nixon's hatchet man, who was described by one journalist as the evil genius of an evil administration to convert to Christianity, to enter negotiations to plead guilty for crimes stemming from the Watergate investigation at a time when many people thought he would get off with no time served or any convictions. And then to give his life to prison ministry and prison reform. We don't understand what is in the soul of a a criminal who hung on a cross next to Jesus for crimes he had committed against the Roman state who would turn to Jesus in faith and ask Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But he did, and he was welcomed. We don't understand the depths 
of the soul of a murderer like Saul of Tarsus who hunted Christians for imprisonment and death and that gave away his education, his gifts, his social standing to preach about Jesus. That's an unlikely convert. But if there's hope for such seemingly obvious degenerates as these, then there's hope for any of us. God saw past their external decorations or lack thereof and and did what he pleased with their lives. God is in the business of taking people who have tried to run their own lives as their own kings and their own queens and have realized it doesn't work, that it's broken, that it leads to death, and he offers forgiveness and new life. God's saving choice is based on his perfect internal knowledge that we simply can't comprehend. Let's talk briefly about how this plays out. My last two points are are considerably shorter. But it's interesting, maybe even unusual how this plays out. In terms of the Christian scriptures, though, it's not that unusual. But it's worth reflecting on, how does God's choice get made known? God takes a judge, a priest, a prophet named Samuel, and he sends him to anoint a new king. God provides Samuel only very limited information about this task. Leave Ramah, go to Bethlehem, and anoint the king I chose for myself from Jesse's sons. Uh, take an animal to the sacrifice. There's no reason to believe that Samuel knows Jesse of Bethlehem or that he's ever been to Bethlehem. It's not really Samuel's turf. Like we said, this is not his circuit. But he goes. And only through obedience to this command does God reveal his king to Samuel. And we read in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And so only then does God's choice become somewhat public. Of course, God could have spoken with a booming voice across the whole land of Israel. I have chosen David, son of Jesse, as my king, and he will rule my people. That could have theoretically accomplished the same purpose. It's an interesting thought experiment, whether that would have been effective as it might seem at first blush. But but whether it would have been effective or not, that's not what God did. And that's not generally what God does. Instead, God announces his saving choice through very, very human means. Throughout the scripture, God intentionally works with and through human beings to work out his will and to make it known. And that confounds critics and frustrates even the faithful at times. Why does God do this? Well, on one hand, we might ask, why not? An infinite God who is infinitely creative with infinite means at his disposal might choose to work with and through humans. And if he had chosen some other path, wouldn't we have likely wondered, why does he do it that way? But maybe part of the reason goes back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, we read about the creation of human beings. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created human beings then to be rulers like him, but under him. We are made in his image, so we have a a resemblance to him and that resemblance is tied to this mandate to be fruitful, to be productive, and to exercise dominion or governance over creation. And, and, and the story of Scripture is very much how we have failed at that task and how God is redeeming that original purpose. But we have never ceased being a reflection of our heavenly Creator with all the dignity and value that that entails. As well, I would submit, as God's desire to work with us to bring about his creative ends. So God's desire is not to work over us and against us, but to work with us and through us. And so the announcement of God's saving choice involves Samuel doing what? Both exercising leadership over God's people, in particular over the elders of Bethlehem and Jesse's family, but also exercising obedience to God. And so he's filling that Genesis 1 mandate of governing under God's governance. And God tends to make his saving choice known this way. So is it any wonder then that God continues to make his saving choice known today through mere human beings? Paul writes in Romans 10, speaking of the good news about Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul could even remark to the Christians living in Corinth, for since of the wisdom of God, the world did not Know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God saves people through the folly or the foolishness of preaching. Paul didn't mean that the Christian message was foolish or that the idea of talking about Jesus was foolish, but but he was speaking ironically about how in the eyes of the world, the best efforts might seem to be nothing more than foolishness. And yet, that was how God, in his wisdom, chose to make himself known to those he would save. And and Paul wasn't speaking about primarily what I'm doing here, standing on a podium, uh, on a platform, but preaching being the announcing of the good news about Jesus, the communication of the good news about Jesus, however that is done. Whatever the reason God has chosen to make his choice known through human means, it should be a great encouragement to his people. It means that God can use weak and foolish men and women like us to reveal to the world those whom he has chosen. Here's what I mean. Here's how Peter put it in his first letter. 
In, in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <coughs> God, in his infinite wisdom, has called out a people for himself, whom Peter is writing to, Christians living in Asia, and Peter says part of their calling is to make Jesus known in all of his greatness to those who've not yet heard. Some of those people who hear will be among those God is calling out to himself. Some will be Eliab or Aminadab, but some will be David. And our job is not to make them Christians. Our job is to be obedient to make Jesus known and let God draw the men and women he has called. He'll do it. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If the harvest is plentiful, then the few laborers should reap abundantly, shouldn't they? I think we believe the harvest is scarce and the laborers are adequate. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do we believe that God has chosen a people for himself? Do we believe that God has sent us to cooperate with him in drawing those people to himself? Do we believe the harvest is plentiful? If we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, maybe, maybe we start to see that harvest. Finally, a concluding note in this passage, but not to be overlooked. This passage tells us, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God's saving choice is ratified by his spirit. Under the old covenant, he led his people by empowering David by his spirit. But in the new covenant, he, he dwells with his people by giving each of us the presence of his spirit if we are in Christ. As David needed God's empowerment to lead and rescue God's people, Christians need God's empowerment to fight against sin and to battle for righteousness. The, the truest mark of a true Christian is a changed life, not a perfect life. A Christian knows that, that the Christian is sick, but we know the doctor, and we know the cure, and we are gladly receiving treatment, and we're on a plan of recovery. We're changed from the inside. But again, because we don't have that perfect internal knowledge like God does, we can't identify Christians perfectly in this life, even because we are like blind detectives. But, but, but as detectives, the thing we look for is that external evidence. We look for 
the life changed by God's Spirit. And we know that the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And so where we see such things and such things growing in the love of Christ, we have confidence that the Spirit of Christ is present. That is the hallmark of God's sovereign, saving choice. So when we look at, at, at 1 Samuel 16, I think we, not only do we have this kind of crucial picture to how God is bringing about the, the salvation of his people, and we see God doing it through a choice, but we see a window into how God's choice works out theologically and philosophically. But let's not miss that choice he makes. That choice he makes is for a king. He anoints a king in Bethlehem that day. That word anointed, do you know what that word is? Mashiach, Messiah. David becomes the Lord's Messiah on that day in Bethlehem. And God would promise that through that line of David that he would raise up a truer and better king who would more fully and finally save his people from their sins. That king is Jesus who we celebrate even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have been working through history by your sovereign and gracious saving choice to restore to us a king that we so desperately need when we have tried to be our own. Fix our eyes on Jesus and would you turn hearts back to him Keep us steady. Keep our eyes steady on him this season and today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing his praises one last time before we go.